For an invention which only appeared in 2008, Bitcoin already has a long, complicated history that reads more like a detective novel. And as in all good detective stories, the witnesses are important. One of them joins me today for the first of a two-part conversation which promises some unique insights into the start of Bitcoin, as well as his judicious comments on where we are today. He's a financial cryptographer whose academic papers on triple-entry accounting and Ricardian contracts provided important links between the worlds of law and accountancy and the software design of digital money. He was on the now-famous cryptography mailing list in 2008 when someone called Satoshi Nakamoto turned up with an idea called Bitcoin. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. Welcome to CoinGeek Conversations. My guest today is Ian Grigg, whose relation to Craig Wright and Bitcoin SV is complicated and goes back a long way. So Ian, thank you very much for doing this. You're welcome. And I'd like to go back, way back in history, to the cypherpunk days, Mm. because you and Craig were sort of on the fringes of that movement, I think. Is that, would that be fair? I think that would be fair. We were on the fringes and we were observers and sometimes participants because it was useful to argue and expose the logic and get your thinking in order and so forth. So what were, what is cypherpunks anyway? What is it all about? Cypherpunks were, they were literally started by a group of four retired um, rich people in Silicon Valley who, who recognized that with cryptography coming to the fore and the internet now being the norm in terms of communication, If you put the two together, you created the possibility of having, if you like, a new trade space, a new privacy space, uh, new monetary systems and so forth. And their their thesis was that the evolution of all this would lead to a new, uh, if you like, country, a new jurisdiction, a new way of doing business where we could promise people equal entry and uh, open ability to trade and so forth. So it was a combination of technology, but quite political as well. Oh, very, very, yes. And uh, it helps to to recognise that, um, if you like, the the anti-government movement is very strong in America. Uh, There's a large group of people who are definitely against big government, if you like, and and to some extent any government. So they were looking for ways to create a space where people could do things without having to be necessarily controlled by the big governments, the old governments, the, the crusty institutions that would stop you from doing certain things. Right. And so how did you, your involvement in this and Craig's come about and what, what was your relationship to this movement? Well, anybody could join and participate. They're just mailing lists and so forth. And I, I spent a little bit of time, I guess, in the, the mid-1990s uh, reading, but it, it was the sort of thing where you only needed to spend a year before it would recycle. <laughs> every, every conversation would start once per year. And you were a developer there? or what? I, I was a developer for... At the time, I was building my own systems of in digital Australia. cash and digital assets. No, this was in um, Amsterdam, actually. Oh, OK. Yeah, I, I was uh, in... I'd left Australia in 1990, and I'd bummed around doing various things in Europe, and um, I decided to do an MBA 
because I just needed something to do, something for interest sake. It wasn't because I wanted to be a you know hotshot CEO or anything like that. And I learned about finance. And while I was learning about finance and zero coupon bonds, a, a mate of mine was over in Amsterdam working with DigiCash. And David Chorm's company, he'd invented the concept of digital cash on the internet. So that was very exciting. And while I was sitting in finance classes learning about zero coupon bonds, um, I realized that the dollar was a zero coupon bond. In fact, we were taught this. This is what a dollar is. And once you have a zero coupon bond, you can build a framework of uh, finance to basically simulate any instrument. So I realized if, if they were issuing dollars, then they could issue zero coupon bonds. If they could issue zero coupon bonds, we could issue any financial instrument. So Gary and I set up the, the business to issue everything else. DigiCash, we're going to do the cash, the dollar or the pound or the euro. Uh, we were going to do everything else. And that's how I got involved in the cypherpunks because they were actually talking about finance, building finance for the net. How did that idea for a business develop then? Or didn't it? Technically, it was fine. We built the system and we were up uh, trading out. We issued our own bonds and our own cash uh, and we were trading that and, and so forth. But we couldn't actually turn it into a business because I, I guess I made a strategic mistake there. I thought bonds would be an easy entry business and they are. They're, they're not technically regulated. Anybody can issue a bond. A company can issue a bond, etc., etc. But it's a big company game. And we were too small to make a mark. So you know, once we burnt through our capital, we had to stop, as right. so many entrepreneurial projects uh, have found. But we did actually build the system. We built the first exchange, the first, uh, and we issued digital cash. The first bonds were issued by us, and we also issued other instruments. And this is all in the mid-90s. Amazing. And so uh, how did uh, the, the idea of Bitcoin or the white paper or Satoshi Nakamoto first come to your attention? Uh, we were on the um, cryptography mailing list, not the cypherpunks mailing list. This is a common mistake that people make. On the cryptography mailing list, I, I maintained a watching brief on there because, uh, because I was working with cryptography and when I just needed to know what the newest developments were. And um, Satoshi comes up and posts this paper and I read the paper and uh, watched the debate. I, I actually decided not to participate in it because somebody else was on there. And he had a very similar mindset to me. Right. And he, he dove into you it. You didn't started. need to. Uh... I didn't need to. You know, I, and my head was in another space at the yeah. time. So I, I just maintained a watching brief on the, uh, the mails coming by and didn't worry about it. And I thought, you know, this is never going to work. Uh, the notion of spending energy to create consensus, that'll never work. Nobody will do that. Well, the first criticism was this is never going to scale, I think. That was the first um, response when Craig put the white paper up. Yes, yes. And I, I probably would have agreed with that criticism, but I, I think it was an unfounded criticism. Um, uh, my main concern and my concern always was you, you're creating a system where you compete to put more energy into the system. And mm -hmm. that's like a potlatch design, uh, if you're familiar yes. with the, um, the, but so the North American natives concept where everyone everyone contributes to a sort of communal feast. Yes, and the, the, the chief that throws the most value into the fire is the one that has the most influence. Right, I and, see. Yes. So it's a destructive process. And, and that that's very, if you like, it's offensive. 
right. to, to people who've spent their entire life making systems more efficient. Right. But so <laughs> have you overcome your reservations about that? Because that is the system, isn't it? That is the system. I've, I wouldn't say I've overcome my reservations. Uh, as I was saying um, earlier, I think it, it is going to happen and it is what is happening. And therefore, we have to accept that. But I think if, if you're going to spend that amount of energy, you really should be pulling out all the stops to make best use of that energy. And I see that there's, you know, there's a bit of a, there's a big argument, there's so-called big blockers versus small blockers. Um, the small blockers, are, they have a, a serious problem because they're not making it more efficient. They're spending an awful lot of energy, but they're not getting much out of it. You know, the number of transactions per second they're doing is like mm. still sub 10. Well, and that's ridiculously expensive. It's negligent, I think, on their part to not expand the block size. I mean, I have a question about this that may be a stupid question, but I can see that the argument that lots of transactions on a block make it more worthwhile for that mm. block to exist. Yes. But is it not the case that the number of miners who are competing to win that block mm. is not dependent or pro related to the amount of transactions on the block. You may have... Not particularly related, no. Well, but, so, but so doesn't your argument about, well, so we've got to make use, better use of it, how mm. doesn't that undermine that argument? Well, the system doesn't actually... Um, the process, the pure process of mining doesn't care how large the block is. No, exactly. And in fact, in some instances, there have been miners doing zero transaction blocks. Right, but doesn't that make because the argument can. of we should scale each block? That's not really relevant then anymore, to, is it? Well, two things. Technically, you're right, it's not relevant. However, the blocks also pay fees. The, the transactions also pay fees. Right. And as time goes on, the block reward diminishes and the fees increase in import. So you're not going to get any income at all in the future, or you, you get very low income in terms of BTC in, in the future because mm. of this notion that every four years, the block reward halves. But the so, number of miners who want to compete will mm. be related to the reward that they get for winning a block. And whether that reward is the block reward or the transaction fees, I wouldn't have thought made any difference. Oh, it, it doesn't matter as long as they get their reward, yes. But they increase the number of transaction fees the amount of transaction fees by using bigger blocks and including as many transactions as they can. But in terms of saving energy, don't you, if that was your priority, you'd want fewer miners to be competing in the network. Oh, and, and that is happening, yeah, because uh, the, the natural evolution of the miners is to get to a larger scale, which means the smaller ones are just knocked out of consideration. You know, there's this notion in, in some chains that to defend the chain, everybody should mine. But the everybody who mines never gets a block. So they're irrelevant. Right. And, and therefore... So they're just wasting their time. And they're just energy. wasting their time. Yes, yes. And therefore, what happens, it's the normal economies of scale. To have a serious chance at getting that reward, you've got to have a big warehouse with a lot of electricity, and it's got to be full of these miners, and only big boys can play that. So, so we're actually reducing the number of miners down to three, four, five, six. Right, so that's in a way the best hope for not wasting a massive amount of energy, is to have a sort of battle of the giants when it comes to miners. Yeah. <laughs> the problem with that is that, yes, that's, that's sort of true. 
but you're now drifting into the notion of why don't we establish a cartel and just agree amongst ourselves to cap the amount. No, I mean that it would evolve in that direction. Yeah. Other people could join if they wanted to, but they might not be able to because... Ooh, they can't get a look in, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a complicated thing, but th- there's something else going on here, and that is that the people who hate Bitcoin, we sometimes call them the no-coiners, um, they are furious at the amount of energy that's spent, and they were particularly triggered by Elon Musk recently. So at some point when Elon Musk decided his green energy car company would start taking Bitcoin, which is the antithesis of green efficiency, this triggered them all. And they've been you know, on the phone to their MPs and to journalists and all this sort of stuff, creating a bit of furor. So, and that has worked. There is now a sense, there's a political sense floating around that we need to do something about this, this profligate abuse of energy. So I think the answer to that is you've got to be responsible with what you're doing. And you've got to try and make your transactions count. You've got to make those blocks count. And the answer there is you've got to scale up the block size. So you're getting a lot of transactions in there. Otherwise, you've got no argument against the green factor. Right, because BTC, if, it, if all it's ever used for is for people to buy it, hoping they're going to be able to sell it for more money than they bought it for, the energy is just for a completely pointless purpose. You might as well just throw a dice and decide yes. who's going to win. Yes, and that, and that is literally what we're doing with mining. We're throwing dice, except we're doing it electronically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but do you think, just in the big picture terms, where do you stand on the idea that a huge amount of energy, you know, uh, comparable to the energy used by whichever small country you favour, yes. um, is is being used in this these networks. Is that it, would you say I that's mean, true or not? Well, I, I think it's true, uh, and it's a concern. Um, I mean, I've I've kind of made my peace with the fact that that is going to happen. It is happening, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. And there's probably nothing a government can do to stop it. So it, it behoves well, us to do it efficiently. There are, there, there are energy uses that governments uh, regulate. They put tax on petrol. To For stop. example. Um, so I don't see why, in principle, this is something that a government couldn't do anything about. They could, but the problem is the governments can only deal with their own borders. And there's lots of other countries out there. That, and it's nice when the G7 gets up and says, oh, we're going to do this with corporate tax, or we're going to do this with blah, blah, blah. But... Bitcoin is definitely a competitive situation, a system that's easily able to move across borders. So it, it doesn't matter what the G7 says. And the, the, other, the flip side of that is if, if you look at, for example, global warming and all the stuff that uh, the governments have talked about and so forth, they have failed to come to consensus on how to do this. So they're going to fail to come to consensus on how to deal with Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> if they can't do global warming, then... What hope have they got for coming up with something as simple as Bitcoin? Right. Okay. Um, let's go back into history. You were talking about the the mailing list mm. uh, that you were list, sort of the cryptography mailing cryptography list. mailing list where yes. you were kind of lurking. Uh, Craig or, or Satoshi, as it, uh, I should say, mm. was was writing. Yes. And um, the white paper was announced on that mailing list. Yes. How much? interest was there and what was the sort of general reaction amongst that community? There was quite a bit of interest actually. I was surprised at the interest Um, and I think 
part of that, obviously part of that was because it was a new solution. And we don't see many new solutions. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask you, what was specifically original and in, in what was proposed there? Uh, the pseudonym system wasn't original. I, I was using that. The notion of, it, it was two things. It was coupling this proof of work to the economic incentives in the sense that when you won your lottery, that was fine. We'd already had that sort of lottery system before, but that caused the generation of money or Bitcoin. And that gave people an economic incentive to do that process. So it was making the sort of machine, pulling all the bits together and making it, them relate to each other. And creating a feedback loop. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there, there was a, a very uh, promising system called Mojo Nation in the early 2000s, which had put together most of these components. But what caused them to fail was that there weren't enough people doing this thing and there were too many people doing that thing. Right. And they had no monetary feedback loop to balance it all out. Right. So it, it, was, it was just a sort of perfect, uh, you know, you put the pieces of the jigsaw together like this and mm. suddenly it all Well, worked. the notion that the actual machine would generate the money or the Bitcoin and hand it to you for doing some task. This was quite um, a stunning notion because up until then, everybody was talking about, oh, well, somebody would issue some money and then manually we would pay for stuff. But nobody had advanced the idea that the machine itself would generate its own money and distribute it. Right. So uh, taking the story forward from there, mm. how did you get more closely involved with, uh, with Bitcoin? Um, and personally with Craig. Yeah. Uh, so for a long time, I just ignored it. Around about 2013, I went to, to some... They asked me to become, an, to become the devil's advocate at some uh, VC round. So I went there and I dutifully played the devil's advocate and said, this is bad, this is crap, this will never work, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I came away thinking, you know, whatever I said, the reality is that these people are all sitting in a room and they are going to invest. What Was there a particular project under discussion that you were devil's it, advocate in relation no, to? No, it wasn't a particular project. It was a VC company raising a new round or raising its first round to be able to invest in projects in the space. Whatever they chose. Whatever they chose to in do. In relation to a blockchain project. Blockchain. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So I think it might have been the very first VC that had decided to formally get involved. And uh, there was one person there who was the... Uh, the, the positive person, and he was a big investor. And then there was me to sort of counterbalance it right. and say, you know, put the negative, pour the cold water right. on it. Uh, but I, I came away from that event thinking, you know, actually, no matter what I think about the mining and so forth, and no matter what I think about the people and this and that and the other, this thing has happened and the boat is leaving. You, you were like a barrister who, who didn't believe the story you were trying to argue then. For example, that's right. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so I, I paid a lot more attention to it after that. I, had an, I started talking to people about it just, just out of interest's sake. And I had some very interesting conversations in about 2013 uh, or maybe 2014. No, 2013. And I realized there was a problem. We, we were spending, as a community, the, the people involved in Bitcoin at the time, were spending an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out who Satoshi was. And it became an obsession for some people. 
And, and that really struck me. It, it took me a while to get my thoughts in order, but eventually I realized, no, this is wrong. We are the privacy community. We come from the privacy um, sector. We play with PGP on the cypherpunks. Privacy is a given. We're trying to protect people from whoever their attacker is, whether it be a crook or a government or whoever. And here we've got perhaps the most interesting result in, in our field in many years, since, since David Chaum invented digital cash. So that's like in 30 years. And all we're trying to do is take away his privacy. This, this caused me to be very disquieted. So I, I started thinking about that. And I, the first thing I did was I started talking to people and saying, you know, actually, we're from the privacy community. We shouldn't be trying to dox this person. We shouldn't be trying to figure out who it is. There's a reason why these people are, are hiding, whoever they are. So I started spreading this meme, consciously talking to everybody I could and just sending them a mail when they said, you know, this is the person who's most likely Satoshi today, and it would be a different person every week. <laughs> and I'd just send them a mail and say, you know, we're actually, we are the privacy community. We shouldn't be doing this. And eventually got through. It took six months before I started getting feedback coming back. A mm. uh, company announced to me, yeah, yeah company policy. We never try and figure out who Satoshi is. <laughs> right. And then I thought, bingo, mission accomplished. On that note, we're going to leave Ian's story until next week, when we'll hear about his encounter with the man he concluded must be Satoshi Nakamoto, or at least the main contributor to what Ian calls the Satoshi team. So please join me next week for more of the fascinating story of Ian Grigg and his relations with Bitcoin. Until then, from me, Charles Miller, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>